0: you don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world but you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. people that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart, you don't have to have good looks, you don't have to be from a good family or from a good school you just have to know a few basic simple glorious majestic obvious unchanging eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference because it isn't you it's, it's what you're gripped with. with but one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference all you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old, healthy. Have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell. And that's all you want. You don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. That's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that... Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliasson, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, To make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards medical doctor in the Twin Cities and then in retirement partnering up with Ruby also pushing 80 and going from village to village in Cameroon and the brakes give way Over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I ask my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, a a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick, in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked? It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream the American dream a nice house a nice car a nice job a nice family a nice retirement collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did here it is Lord my shell collection look Lord my shell collection and I've got a good swing and look at my boat God look at my boat God well not for Ruby and not for Laura Don't waste your
1: life. Don't waste it. That was a sermon preached about 17 years ago by John Piper, which is why the footage looked like grainy and stuff. Um, But about 17 years ago, he preached this um, to college students. And uh, since then, it's become a famous sermon. It's one of the most more famous sermons of of our era. And went on to become a book. Like from that sermon, he went and launched a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And which is still selling um, a lot of copies today. And we're going to spend the next six weeks talking about the concepts that are in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. And we're going to see what this book has to say to us. And we always close out the spring semester with a, a series that's directed at our outgoing seniors, but it really applies to all of us. But I've got them in mind as, I, as we teach this uh, in the coming weeks, um, and there are really two ways, I think, that you're going to be tempted to waste your life. The first one, I think, is obvious. The first one is to, you know, go off to college and to just live for fun and pleasure the next few years. That's the most obvious one. In fact, um, you may not realize this, but uh, you, you've heard the word amusement. We have um, things called amusement parks. And I think when you think of amusement, you just think of fun, Right? It's just a big word for fun. But if you look at what the word amusement really means, if you look at the the, the middle word there, the word muse, which is a pretty good band, by the way, um, but that word muse means to think deeply about something. So as you know, when you take the word, letter A and put it in front of something, it becomes its counter. It's the opposite. So if muse means to think deeply about something, then amuse means to not think deeply about something. And so amusement or amuse means to not think. I mean, everyone knows the point of fun is to not think. Like, you don't go to Six Flags to reflect, right? You don't go to think deeply about life um, at Schlitterbahn. The, The point of going to those places is to have fun and to not think. And so we call them amusement and amusement is often used to escape reality. Like, I want to I escape reality. I want to escape um, the seriousness of life. And so we, we, um, we kill desire with amusements. But what do people say? What's something people say when they've been partying a lot? You'll hear this phrase, even among everyone, you'll hear the phrase, you know, we got wasted. We use that word, we got wasted. And it's an accurate description because someone who chooses this way in which to live, that person, of course, they're truly wasting their life. And it's, it's obvious to um, most of us that's the case. But some of you get, will leave here and be tempted to waste your life in this way. This might be the most obvious way, the most obvious temptation uh, and way to waste your life. But there's a second way to waste your life. And it looks a lot different. In fact, it looks complete opposite to what I just described to you. And in fact, this person is motivated. They are a hard worker. And it's really describing what he talked about in this video. It's, um, it's you're a hard worker. You, you strive for perfection. You strive. You do just what your parents tell you to do. And you're doing all this for what? You're doing all these things for what purpose? And I'm not saying to you today or through this series that you should not work hard, you should not apply it. That's not the point of what I'm trying to say. But I'm trying to get you to wrestle with the question, why? Why should I do these things? Is it to build the king? Is it to glorify God and build his kingdom? Or is it just simply to have a nice, easy, 20-year retirement whenever I turn 65? And I know that um, you might be asking the question, why are we discussing retirement when we're, we're like 16 or 17? What is the point of talking about that? And here's why I want to get into this, because um, this mindset starts right now. The mindset he's describing starts in high school and college. And you stop asking the question, you know, why am I doing all these things? And you just go into default mode. Well, I did this because that's what my mom and dad taught me to do. And you don't think about why or purpose, or why your life looks the way that it looks. And so this person can, can work hard and strive and strive and strive just so they can spend the last 20 years just taking it easy. I think so many people, even strong Christians, myself included, um, we just want to live life like this. We just want to be able to, to sleep in. Um, we, we, we picture retirement one day looking like this. I just want to be able to sleep in, get up when I want, eat breakfast, read the paper. You guys don't realize this but one day you'll be old and you'll actually read the paper. Right? All right? You will. Now, my own son Landon, he's an exception. He is a 65-year-old man in a 9-year-old body. He reads the paper every morning. He runs, he sprints down the driveway. I'm going to get the paper. Gets the paper. Brings it back in, and it's sports section time. He, he's like, he's got this weird obsession with sports, right? I don't know where he gets that from. Probably from Courtney. But, um, not from me at all. Uh, but one day you'll read the paper, and so your, your goal in life will be to sit and, and, and sit easy and just read the paper, and, you know, go for long walks, plan vacations. That's fun. Watch movies. Watch movies. Watch shows. I mean, you deserve it, right? You deserve, you've worked so hard for, 20, for 35 years. You deserve this. And this kind of person, when they spend their retirement living this way, I call it, this person is just waiting to die. It's like they're just waiting, they're just killing time until death comes. No purpose, no aim, no goal, just it's time to take it easy. And this mindset starts even right now. So um, in the last series, we talked about this concept of of reverse engineering your life, living with the end in mind. And some of you see the goal of life as what I just described to you. The goal of life is to work really hard, get into that school, get that degree, get that master's, get that doctorate, and then work hard, work hard, save, save, save. And it's retirement time. It's like, okay, now what? Time to take it easy. And so that's, that's what you have in the back of your mind. It's the picture you have in the back of your mind. So work hard now so you can have a nice, easy retirement. And you're not the partying type. So that's not your temptation. But there's a way to waste your life while never touching a drug or getting drunk. You can waste it simply by living in normal, hard-working, get up in the morning, go work out, Work hard, come home, eat dinner, binge watch Netflix, go to sleep, repeat. So there's a way to waste your life without even touching the things in life that we normally think of as wasting our lives. And so some call it the American dream, but it's really just another way to waste your life. So I want you to go ahead and do your first two discussion questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss questions one and two. All right, we're going to spend part of our time this morning trying to answer one big question. What is it that causes the wasted life? So we're going to look at Mark chapter 8. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 34. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. So this passage helps answer the question, what causes the wasted life? So Mark 8, 34, here's what it says. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is a very famous passage. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. I'm sure many of you have heard this passage before. When Jesus says, whoever would save his life, this means living a self-centered, focused only on the present kind of life. So it's not referring necessarily to just trying to save your life from physical harm but this could mean really anything living a self-centered focused only on the present kind of life and you're trying to save and preserve yourself preserve your life this would be living for pleasure but it could also be working hard now so you can take it easy later both of those would apply what he's saying here is if you live with, with this goal, you're going to end up with nothing. He's, going to, he's saying that when you try to preserve and save your life in this way, you end up losing the very thing you're trying to protect and preserve. And for some that might be physical death, but for others it might mean spiritual death and then eventual physical death. So you end up with nothing. So everything wastes away, and you miss out on Jesus in the end. So um, that's the point he's trying to make in this part of the passage. But whoever loses his life, meaning you give up this self-centered, me-centered life, this person gets Jesus. And this person, ironically, when when you lose yourself, this is when you truly preserved your life because your life is now found in Christ. And your life is preserved in the most meaningful way possible because you're a follower of Jesus. You know, some people say things like this. They say things like, I'm trying to find myself. And that's usually said whenever people are, maybe they've gone off the deep end into sin and they are... Um, living a crazy life and maybe they grew up in a Christian home and they've decided to abandon those beliefs and those ideas and now they're going to pursue their own ideas about life and so they venture off to 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 find themselves is what they say but if you look at what Jesus is saying in this passage the only way to truly find yourself is to find Jesus you're not going to find yourself Just trying to live for yourself. Only way to find yourself is to find Jesus and submit your life to Him and surrender your life to Him. Look at verse 36 and 37. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? I want you to think about this concept. How much is your soul worth? If you could put a price tag on your soul, how much is your soul worth? I mean, you know it's a trick question because there's not an answer to that question. There is no price tag. There is nothing in whatever kind of amazing car you drove to church this morning. There is nothing that is more valuable than your soul. There is nothing that's more meaningful on this earth than the souls that inhabit these bodies. It's the most valuable thing that God has created. And yet so many of us go and want to trade that soul in for earthly possessions and earthly pleasures. We make this trade that I think grieves God. And so how much is your soul worth? And then look in verse 38. It says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I want you to see verse 38 because it tells us what causes the wasted life and it's shame. Shame is one of the biggest causes of the wasted life. There are many others, but I want to focus on shame today. Shame is one of the biggest causes of the wasted life, and this is true for an unbeliever, because I, I imagine that there's unbelievers in the room today that, in your mind, you don't want to follow Christ because you see following Christ as a shameful thing. You've got some friends, and those friends aren't believers either, and you know that if you came to them and said, you know what, guys, I, I, I decided to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do everything differently now because I'm following Jesus. You know what's going to come of that with some of your friends. And so for you, following Christ would be a shameful thing to do. But it's also true for the believer because even though you call yourself a Christian, we still want the respect of other people. And you know that if you, if you wear your faith on your sleeve, you're going to be seen as one of those weirdos. You'll be seen as one of those people that doesn't quite get it. Like, yeah, you're, you're one of those weird Christians who actually lives out your faith. And so for you, there's an element of shame. Even though you're a believer and you say you're a believer, that you only really admit that when you're around people that are like-minded. Because you don't want to be seen as someone who's not respectable. This person likes the idea of being a Christian but is too ashamed to practice the faith and live out the faith. And there's really two kinds of shame that I want to talk about. The first is ashamed of Christ. The second is ashamed of Christians. Now, um, someone who's ashamed of Christ, maybe you've got lots of friends that would look at you and, 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 and say, I can't believe you would put your faith and put your whole belief, your whole philosophy of life, Into the framework and ideas of someone who was here two thousand years ago, we can't even prove if he was even here or not. So, what are you doing, living your life for someone who lived that many years ago? Are you detached from reality? Are you detached? And so, this person is ashamed of Christ. I can't really talk about him and following him because it's just it's a mockery. But then there's a second kind of shame, and it's. Being ashamed of Christians, and this is very complicated because we all know that the, that the Christian faith is a very complicated thing because not only do you have to think about how you're perceived as a person, but you've also got to think about all the people in this area, in this culture, and in this city, and even in our world, And you've got to think about how are they perceived. So you know there's this perception out there that you know people have of Christians. And you want nothing to do with some of the baggage that is out there about Christians. And part of that is, is rightly motivated. But you know there's a lot of shame involved when it comes to saying I'm a Christian because of what other Christians are like. Or Christians that you know in your school what they're like. And so you have this. Shame, either shame about Christ or shame about other Christians. I will tell you that I I struggled for a long time with this because I felt this call in my life. I wanted to be a part of the body and be a part of kingdom building work in the body of Christ, the church. But for many, many years I was ashamed of of not just being a Christian, but ashamed of the church and ashamed of its drama, ashamed of all the political infighting I saw in the church growing up as a kid. And I wanted nothing to do with that part of the church. Just give me some guys I can disciple and mentor and leave all that stuff at the door. And so for a long time, I felt this pull that God was pulling me into uh, something like this. But I wanted nothing to do with it because I thought, "I I can't I don't want to have the word pastor in front of my name. It was a shameful thing to me. And I had some great people in my life that were pastors, but I just saw that title as a shameful thing. And, and part of that was because when, when you're sitting with friends at dinner and everyone's deciding what they're going to do for a living, and there's the guy who says, I'm going to be a doctor, and I'm going to be an engineer, I'm going to be an architect, and if it came to me, I'd have to say, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a pastor. And you could see, if, if you told people, like, what you're thinking about doing, you could see in their eyes, it's like this r- r- surprise, like, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. That's great, man. Helping out people. That's awesome. And it was this shameful thing for me. Like, I want to I wanna do something that's important. Something where I get respect from people. And so, for me, it was a, it was a shameful thing for a long time to even think about that as a, as a career. This is not where I am today. But I still struggle with shame. I still struggle with different kinds of shame. I know for many of you, you want to be taken seriously. And so you struggle with this. Especially for our young men. Because I know that if you're a young man sitting here, there's an aspect of Christianity that can just seem weak and wimpy. It's true. You come into the church and there's an aspect of our faith of, of the Christian faith, I think, that can, that can appear weak and wimpy to us. And, and we can feel this way. And so some of the trappings of the church can just feel like, as a young man, like, I don't want to be here. This, is, this just seems girly, the things that we do in church. And there's, at church, there's lots of, like, talking involved. And I don't like to really do that a whole lot. And so you begin to feel like this, the Christian faith is not something a young man wants to feel called to. And here's what's really crazy about that, because I'm not quite sure how we've gotten there in viewing the Christian faith as weak and wimpy, considering the first believers were martyred for their faith. There's a lot of blood spilled in the early church, because these men and women believe this so strongly and were so committed to their faith that they went to um, their death very often because of their commitment. And so I'm not sure how we've gotten to the place where the Christian faith is seen as weak and wimpy. I'm not sure how we've gotten to that place. But this is the place I think many young men especially, how they tend to view it. So shame can be one of the biggest causes of the wasted life. I want to discuss now what prevents the wasted life. What prevents it? Look at Isaiah chapter 43. You can look at this on the screen for this one. Isaiah 43 verses 6 and 7. Here's what it says. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So right here in this little passage, we see a clue. Why did God create us? He created us for his glory. He created us to glorify him. And that might sound like just a nice Christian thing to say, but here's what it means. There are really two ways to magnify something. There is a microscope and there is a telescope. A microscope is where you take something really, really tiny and small and you look under the microscope and it appears huge, large under the microscope. A telescope is different. A telescope, you are looking off into, the, into space, into the distance, and the thing you're looking at is actually really big, but it looks tiny because it's so far away. It looks like a pinprick. And so when you see it, you're really seeing this great and glorious thing for what it really is. So to magnify God, to glorify God, this is like magnifying God in the way that a telescope magnifies something. Taking something great that might appear small and seeing it for what it really is. Displaying it for what it really is. So God is like this. God looks small to us. God can seem insignificant. Like he's there but not that big of a deal. And so to magnify him in the way that the Bible talks about is to take God who looks small to the world and magnify him to the world, and let them see who he really is. This is what it means to glorify God, to magnify him, to display his greatness. This is why we spent so much time talking about relationships the last three months, because um, this is one of the primary ways we think in which you're going to magnify God to the world as if you do relationships the right way. You will magnify him to the world. We're going to show the world what God's like, so I want to bring this whole thing to this idea. Um, our whole purpose is to bring glory to God by magnifying him in the world. And we said, um, and I want you to understand this, this is life's main purpose because this is what's going to prevent you from wasting your life. You're getting this one big grand purpose for life. Purpose of my life is to glorify God by magnifying him to the world. This is the main prevention for the wasted life. But here's the problem, is that most of us see glorifying God as just an obligation. It's just, yeah, I'm supposed to do that because the Bible talks about that. It says some, somewhere in there to glorify God, so I guess I should, I should live a life that glorifies him somehow. I'm not sure what that really means. So if there's one truth I want you to get in this whole series, it's this next quote pursuing God's glory is the same pathway as pursuing our joy. You might see God's glory and your joy as two separate pathways. God's glory kills my joy. Or if I pursue my, pursue my own joys, then that's not going to glorify God. But they're really the same pathway. And we're going to unpack this idea more throughout the series, but pursuing God's glory is the same pathway as pursuing our joy. When I say joy, I don't mean easy. The pathway to joy is full of hardship and tears and sometimes blood. But this will be the main point of the series that it's God's glory and your joy and showing how the two are tied together. I want to, you to see this quote by John Piper. He says this, if we try to display the excellence of God without joy in it, we will display a shell of hypocrisy and create scorn or legalism. If you not try to just preach God's glory and there's no joy in it for us, no passion, no love, we just become hypocrites. We follow some rules, but that's it. But if we claim to enjoy the, His excellence and do not display it for others to see and admire, then we deceive ourselves. Because the mark of God-enthralled joy is to overflow and expand by extending itself into the hearts of others. The wasted life is the life without a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. I did a, uh, a funeral recently for my uncle. I told you guys a while back about my uncle who lived in Houston. And he had a brain tumor. And he was a doctor at MD Anderson. He's a doctor at the cancer hospital in Houston and was struck with a brain tumor a few years ago and it was a nasty tumor and so it took his life he um, passed away in early January and I went to go see him and he's not a Christian he's a, he's a sworn atheist and I went to go see him back in I think it was October and he said I want you to do me a favor I want you to, I want you to do my funeral my service. And so I drove to Houston to meet with him to talk about the plans for this service. And and just thinking about the idea of, okay, how do I do a service memorial for someone who's not a believer, someone who's in his early 60s and has never professed faith in Christ, and yet he's asking me, a family member, to do a service for him. And he's telling me, he says, Dave, I actually I know you're a Christian, of course I know you're a Christian, but I want you to not talk about Jesus during, my, during the funeral. And I'm like, how am I going to do a funeral for someone? And I can't talk about, he lived a horrific life, and I can't talk about the thing that I'm most passionate about. And so I prayed and thought, I had lots of friends that were giving me input on this. Should I do this? Is it a compromise to do this? And I really began to think, if I'm going to have an inroad in with my uncle, I'm going to say yes to this funeral, and I'll say yes to his demands, and I'll I'll find a way, I'll find a way to have a ministry of presence in this situation. And so it gave me lots of chances to call him on the phone and talk about the gospel and, and try to, any way I can, to converse with him about Jesus. He had many people at his work that were Christians, sending him books, doing last-ditch efforts, trying to bring him to Christ and and, and be a tool of the Holy Spirit to bring him to faith and salvation. And to my knowledge, he never, ever um, received Christ. He never surrendered his life to Christ. And now I'm going to go preach a sermon at a funeral in front of many unbelievers. And you see on this program here, this funeral took place at a Unitarian Universalist church, like the whole thing is just one of the most odd situations to put me in as a pastor. And so God gave me the words, and I I respected his wishes, but I had people come to me afterwards, and they knew I was a Christian, and they would say, you know, I'd love to hear about some of your conversations with your uncle. But everything in me wanted to scream out in this service, this man wasted his life. He wasted it. I mean, he, his wife and him were divorced or almost divorced by the end of his life. He committed adultery numerous times. He was um, one of the worst dads. My cousin has said things like that he hates his father. And so this man, even though he was brilliant and smart, And had so many gifts and talents and things going for him. He left this destruction, wave of destruction with his life. Just the whole thing just was depressing to me. To look at how my uncle wasted his life. And then you contrast that with the funeral I went to about two weeks ago. Gary's mom up in the main main building here at TBC. And here's a woman who didn't have the resume of my uncle. She couldn't give you of here's a list of all my accomplishments in the professional world. And yet I heard testimony after testimony of her life and her faith and the impact that it had on Gary and the grandkids and everyone in that family. And I began to think, what a contrast What an amazing contrast. You have someone who worked so hard, was so brilliant and so smart, and such a good scientist, and yet he wasted his life. And then someone who poured out her faith to her family and her kids and grandkids. And look what has been left in her wake. And that is a, a shepherd of us as a body who cares for us and loves us because he was loved well. And so I think it's a contrast for us to think about and reflect on because you and I we get one pass at this thing. We get one pass at life. See, so you got to you got to stop thinking about in terms of averages and life expectancy. You can't think of I got like 72.3 years. You got to think in terms of no I got I got one chance to be a college freshman. I'm not going to waste it. I got one chance to be a high school sophomore. I got one chance to be a high school junior or senior. I'm not going to waste it. I'm not going to waste it. So that's what the series is going to be about. Go ahead and finish up your last few discussion questions.